This is Christmas Sunday. Christmas is not just a single day, it is actually 12 whole days. We say that Christmas is a season, and uh, it is a season to be celebrated. So I want to invite you, my name is Chris, by the way, I get to be one of the pastors here, and I want to invite you to turn your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. If you don't have Bibles, I think we have, maybe not, maybe you want to, wait a second, we have some Bibles, I think, some people are going to bring some Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand, I'm going to be reading out of the New Living Translation, there's somebody right here in front. We have Bibles in English and Spanish. If Spanish is your heart language or you're practicing your Spanish right here in the front, I'm going to be reading out of the New Living Translation, and I invite you to turn to uh, Matthew chapter 2, starting with verse 13. And I also invite you to stand as we honor the reading of God's Word for us this evening. You know the Christmas story. Usually it has mangers and angels, Matthew's version is quite a different version. So hear the word of the Lord out of the Gospel of Matthew. After the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, flee to Egypt with the child and his mother, the angel said. Stay there until I, until I tell you to return, because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. That night, Joseph left for Egypt with the child and Mary, his mother, and they stayed there until Herod's death. This fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet, I called my son out of Egypt. Herod was furious when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him. He sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, based on the wise men's report of the star's first appearance. Herod's brutal action fulfilled what God had spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A cry was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted. For they are dead. When Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Get up, the angel said. Take the child and his mother back to the land of Israel. Because those who were were trying to kill the child are dead. So Joseph got up and returned to the land of Israel with Jesus and his mother. But when he learned that the new ruler of Judea was Herod's son, Archelaus, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned in a dream, he left for the region of Galilee So the family went and lived in a town called Nazareth. This fulfilled what the prophets had said. He will be called a Nazarene. This is the word of God for the people of God on this Christmas Sunday. And we say, thanks be to God. You may be seated. So each each week, one of the things that I hope to do is to help us to see ourselves in the biblical story. I want to let you know that the Bible is not just a set of moralisms or truisms that we should follow. It's a story that we actually find ourselves in. This is a story that shapes who we are. It shapes our very identity as individuals. But more importantly, it shapes our collective identity. It shapes our identity together as members of a community that we call humanity. And as hard as that might be, When we read these stories, we're actually invited to see the reality of our world in these stories. These these texts re-script our tragic stories by allowing us to see the tragedies of those before us because they just might be able to show us a way out. That is why we call it the gospel. Now, we read this story, and I'm going to point out a few things to you, and then with maybe with God's help, along with these ancient characters, we might be able to see a way forward in our own lives. 
But I want to ask you a question after we read this story together. What do we do with this Christmas story? This is not an easy story to hear, but here we are and we gather here to tell the truth. You said that. And sometimes the truth that's revealed in stories like these need to be told as hard as they might be. Joseph, uh, the mother and the baby, have to go on the run. They're led by God in a dream into a foreign place. There are no jobs and there's no place to live. So we ask ourselves, how might this story be real life for us? Or maybe more importantly, how might this story be real life for our neighbors? How might this first Christmas that happened 2,000 years ago impact us as we live here in this city together? Will we let it shape or reshape our conveniences or our preferences or maybe even our politics? Will this story change our call and the way in which we live and work and move on these streets or the way in which we live in our homes or in this parish? Well, I heard something this week and uh, I thought it was important for you all to hear because I think it's interestingly enough connected to the Christmas story. And so I want you to hear uh, something that Scott Simon from NPR said on the radio this week. You know, the confession of the church is that Jesus is God. And if that is the case, then God was homeless. God was born into a world that had more than enough to share, and he was homeless. When we read a text like that and we hear a story like that, we have to ask ourselves, what do we do do with this? We understand that the issues are complicated, but it forces us to ask, what kind of neighbor will I be or what kind of neighbor will we be in this city? I was first thinking about this text through that lens. I was also thinking about this text through another lens. For centuries, the oppressed people of God had been waiting for a savior. And through their grief and their torment under the hands of the Egyptians and then the Assyrians and then the Babylonians and then the Persians and then the Greeks and then the Romans, anti-Semitism had shaped them as a people group. Their escape, their wandering, their exile, and now their oppression, they had been waiting a long, long time for rescue. They knew what it was like to be resident aliens. And it's into that world where Matthew says a child has been born who will be the one that could rescue all of them. Matthew tells that story. Luke, on the other hand, tells us us all that happened at the time when Augustus was, was the Caesar of all the Roman territory. You know that Quirinius was the governor of Syria. But all we know in Matthew is that Herod, he only names Herod the one who calls himself the great one, has somehow manipulated his way into power. And Herod the Great was no good. King Herod is the sitting king of the Jews and the entire region. He's on the war path because a baby born in Bethlehem is now the threat and the target. The first century historian Josephus tells us that Herod was not queasy about murdering those who got in his way. If you were his enemy, you were done for. But he wasn't that friendly to his friends or his family either. When he was 70 years old, he got sick. So he planned his funeral. He planned a ceremony for his funeral. And according to one scholar, he ordered the arrest of a number of Jewish elders from a number of villages across Palestine. 
they were jailed there in Jericho, there at the racetrack with instructions to have them killed as soon as he died. That way, there would be loud lamentation all over the country at the time of his death. Uh, he was a bad man. On another occasion, he, he ordered that his wife should be executed if he didn't come back from one of his traveling expeditions. He simply didn't want her to, anyone else to have her. He killed his mother-in-law. He killed some of his sons. So when the Magi told Herod that they were seeking out the new king of the Jews, the, man, the madman goes to work. And really, it was an easy decision. He had all the power in the land and all the anger of the world in his heart, which makes for an explosive situation. So when he's outsmarted by the Magi who leave town without telling him the location of the child, he issues an executive order. Every Jewish child who is two years of age and younger is to be killed. And Herod goes on a killing spree. We almost refuse to let our imaginations go to these places to picture the homes, to see the mothers and the fathers, the brothers and the sisters in this Christmas scene, but it's bad. In 2012, about this time of year, our world was shaken. A story that we first heard on the news became our story. It entered into our homes and it entered into our lives. A man walked into an elementary school in a small upper middle class bedroom community in Newtown, Connecticut, and he shot the place to pieces, killing children. I don't show this picture to, to do anything but help us to remember. This was not our first encounter as a country with violence like this, and it hasn't been, it wasn't the last encounter. In fact, the first 46 weeks of 2019, there were 45 school shootings. But what is shocking about this particular event was not that it wasn't just a good school with good families there that were good, or even that it was a white or suburban school or it was an upper class. What shocked so many were that there were innocent children that were killed, and also what time of year it was. It was the Christmas season when this happened. It was the season of perpetual hope. Now, I don't know if you remember this, but quickly after this event, arguments began to go back and forth. Political arguments about mental illness, violence, gun control. The same kind of arguments every time there is a, there is a grief-stricken act of terror, which there was one today. People want to know what this, but even though there were arguments, people wanted to know what this particular man had against these particular children. And person after person asked the question, how could this happen during Christmas? How could this be? How is this happening? Where is God? Well, the events in Newtown are the events that take place in this Christmas story. Newtown and every school shooting since, from urban to suburban schools, and every act of evil in our lives, is the original Christmas story played out in real time. We are characters in this Christmas tragedy. And what Newtown showed us was that these elements of darkness and anger and violence and despair are the very elements of Christmas and the very elements of our lives. We like singing happy songs. But this is the story that Matthew tells. This was an elementary school full of children who had done nothing wrong. And a, ma a madman comes in, enters a scene, and creates a scene that few can describe. Except for Matthew. Matthew can describe it. And the church 
has decided not to forget it. In fact, this is a Sunday that the church has called the Massacre of the Holy Innocents, or what they call the Slaughter of the Innocents. There is artwork depicted that helps us not to forget this story or this day or whenever there is tragedy or innocents that are killed. The Christmas story is one of darkness, tears, fears, murder, anger, violence, destruction, tragedy, despair, death. And it's ironic that our secular season of Christmas begins with Black Friday. Because right from the beginning, the Christmas story begins with a large shadow of the cross looming over it. It's a rated R story. The story is about politics and power. The story is about a madman, a psychopath, a king named Herod who holds all the power of the land and is threatened by a poor little baby and his lower class parents. And we can see our lives, even the American way of life, in the pages of Matthew. Because we are a country about genocide. The church remembers this day because the church does not want to forget that it is a colony of heaven in a country of death. And we remember and even tell these dark Christmas stories like the slaughter of the innocents because we are reminded to be people who value life. We are right to life people. And right to life is more than just the political issue of abortion. It's about jails for babies on the border. It's about the separation of families. It's about mass incarceration, capital punishment, and the death penalty. We have a tendency to cover our homes, our stores, on our places of work with tinsel and lights. And we want to tell that version of the Christmas story. But frankly, frankly, this is the true Christmas story. And it's revealed in this statement that God was born in the middle of a genocide. What do we, what do we do with that? That's one way, another way to read the text. Here's a third way that I see to read the text, and it's this. When I was a child, I heard this story, and it was told like some sort of, I don't know, adventure that Joseph was on. You know, Joseph hears the voice of God in a dream, and in a cunning and deceptive way, he outsmarts the law like he was Robin Hood or Jason Bourne or something like that. Herod's deceived and Joseph is cunning, ducking through the situation like Spider-Man with his spidey senses. He eludes hitmen, he narrowly escapes their clutches, and in the end he makes them look like fools. And all the children in Sunday school just cheer. But the tr- d- deeper truth to the story is this, that the empire is so weak, so insecure, and so paranoid that the most powerless threaten to knock it down and reveal, it, uh, reveal the house of cards that it is. It is so, the empire is so easily threatened, in fact, that an executive order was declared by Herod that this baby has to be executed. He needs to be found and executed. And the Holy Family, their very lives were on the line. And that is the story for millions and millions around the world. We, we hear this and we see it as some sort of like distant history that happened a long time ago that it was unique and that it happened in a land far, far away. But frankly, this is a common story. It might be the most common story in the world. It's a story that happens every single day. It's a story that draws us beyond what happened to them to the depths of actually what happens to us. 
We know this story. It's a biblical story, but it's also our human story. And the story goes like this. The Holy Family was on the run. Presidential candidate Pete Buttigieg said this week, he said these words. Today I join the millions around the world in celebrating the arrival of divinity on earth who came into this world not in riches but in poverty, not as a citizen but as a refugee. You don't have to like his politics, but he's not wrong. Jesus came to us as a refugee. In recent days, I've been struck by how this story has been played out on TV, on social media, in the newspaper. This is a recent tweet that I saw. On the Feast of the Holy Innocents, we read how the Holy Family fled from Herod's persecution, left their homeland, and took refuge in Egypt. Matthew two thirteen eighteen. Today, we remember the families who are migrants and refugees and internally displaced people like Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. According to our friends at the Sparrow Project, there are 64 million refugees running for their lives today. In 2017, we had just started this church and our president had signed several executive orders and evangelical opinions were all over the map regarding some of his decisions. Well-known pastors were making statements in support of the president's decisions, many of, many of them calling his decisions godly. Now, let me say this. I believe that you can be a supporter of the president. Uh, you don't have to agree with him, or you can. You don't have to agree with anyone for that matter, or you can. But you better be careful when you call something that is attached to self-promotion or self-service or self-protection, or done with an America-first philosophy, you better be careful when you call it that godly. Because that can get you in a whole lot of trouble. But not only that, maybe more serious, and the thing that I feel a little bit more passionate about is when pastors and church leaders actually change the biblical story for political purposes. That will get you in huge trouble. On one occasion, a very influential pastor who was in the news often made a a statement that the Trump plan to prevent refugees from Syria coming to the U.S. was, and these are his words, not a Bible issue. Well, one morning, Pastor Mikhail and I were discussing how disappointed we were that pastors and church leaders were either changing the biblical story or were silent when others did. And we were bothered by the statements that were being made and that there wasn't a reasonable and a charitable objection to some of these statements. So we decided to write one and we wanted to do so with grace and we wanted to do so with dignity, honoring those that we disagreed with. So on January the 27th of 2017, we posted a letter on social media. We were surprised to see that in the end it had 30,000 views. And we wrote it to our church, and it said this. Uh, Back then, we were the Midtown Church. We were not yet in the 8th Street Church, but we said, Dear Midtown Church and friends, today we read with sadness and alarm that a prominent Christian leader in America stated that the Bible has nothing to say about America's policies regarding immigrants and refugees. As your pastors, we want you to know that we do not agree. Let us remind one another what it means that we are the Church of Christ. We who are Christian are called by the name of a working class, Middle Eastern man from oppressed people group. 
His parents smuggled him out of his birthplace as toddlers to escape certain death. They lived for several years as refugees in a bordering country until it was safe to return. He preached and lived love and justice for all people, constantly widening the invitation to his table. He was killed because he refused to submit to earthly powers that oppressed the poor while hoarding wealth and privilege. We who are Christian are invited to partner with, with God in his work of feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, caring for the sick, attending to those in prison, and welcoming the stranger. Jesus tells us that when we do these things, we are doing them for him. And when we refuse, to, we refuse the hungry, the naked, the sick, the imprisoned, and the alien, we are refusing him. Matthew chapter 25, 31 through 46. We who are Christian are baptized submersed in and changed by the name of Jesus. Our first and only allegiance is to him. And with our allegiance pledged to him, he asks us to give ourselves away. Not only back to God, but to one another. Our lives belong to the others around us. Our stuff belongs to them. Our time belongs to them. Our love and our work belongs to them. We who are Christian are called to live in the way of Jesus at all times, under all circumstances, and from within every governmental structure and policy. Some seasons, circumstances, and governments make it easier to live the Jesus way. Others make it more difficult. But our calling does not change. We who are Christian work for justice and advocate on behalf of the poor, the oppressed, the vulnerable, the wounded. We stand in solidarity with our brothers and sisters in our own nation and around the world who have been rejected, oppressed, threatened, and who are in despair. We pray for justice and we look for every opportunity to work for it. Our congregation is committed to developing real relationships with those who are not like us. Our firm conviction is that Jesus has shown us what it means to be a good neighbor. And because of him, we want to be good neighbors to one another. We really believe and seek to practice that our lives are better when we are neighbors. We say it every single week that we want to help one another in real ways. We are interested in tangible, in the tangible, the nitty gritty, and even the political. So church, this is who you are. Be submitted in the love of the Father, the sacrifice of the Son, and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. May we have the courage and the grace to live the way of Jesus together. In the love of Christ, pastors Mikhail Levine and Chris Pollock. Throughout the Old Testament, God reminds Israel who she was. He says, you are foreigners and aliens. Because of that, do not forget the foreigner. Do not forget the alien. In the New Testament, the church was reminded that as the redeemed and renewed Israel, that they are actually aliens and foreigners, and God has not forgotten about them. The Holy Family were refugees. God came to us as a refugee. He was a refugee. He is a refugee. What do we do with that? These issues are complex. On this uh, day of the slaughter of the innocents, we read this Christmas text and we struggle. We struggle with issues like genocide, homelessness, how we respond to our refugee neighbors. We ask these questions these are complex questions that we have to wrestle with. 
But I think that the biblical text is good news for us. And in Matthew, the cross casts a long shadow over the birth of Jesus. He, he's a threat from the very first day. And Matthew records that the events that take place on the first Christmas are not filled with these elements that we would prefer during this season. There are no carols, there's no choirs, there's no shepherds, no manger in Matthew's version. But rather, the good news happens in Matthew's version at night. It comes amid the darkness. And the angel of the Lord goes to Joseph in a dream and he says, get up and take the mother and the child to Egypt. And I think that that is how we respond with issues and stories like this. I think we be like Joseph. Joseph is a man that has no lines in this, in this scene, but he demonstrates his character. This is no ordinary family, which means that you notice that the text did not say, he, he did not hear the angel say, take your son and your wife. In fact, it said, take the mother and the child. Joseph is a man with no lines, but what does he do? He takes responsibility for others. Not only that, he takes responsibilities for others that the law, whether it's the Roman law or the Jewish law, does not require of him to do. He is not required to take care of them. You know, Joseph isn't cunning. Do you know what Joseph is? He's obedient. And you and I are invited to stand in Joseph's shoes. Joseph is the hero we want to be. There is a divine invitation to stand in his shoes. Herod plays this role of a tyrant. He's a villain. He's a murderer with power. He has killing power. He's insecure, unable to trust the motives of his neighbors. He's evil. He's full of hate. He's afraid. And you know what else? Joseph was afraid too. But Joseph, even though he was afraid, acts with the utmost character and quality. And while he is barely mentioned in the biblical story, he's a person that seems to act every time as the very best neighbor, sharing in the plight of this mother and her child when he doesn't have to. As God the homeless one, the one that is born in a genocide, as God the refugee, he shares in our homelessness, in our violence, as, the, as ones who are stranger. And, and the way out is the divine invitation to be like Joseph, who saw his neighbor, the woman and the child, that no law required him to take care of, but he did anyway. And he brought her in. And he treats her son as his own. And he protects them and shields them. He reminds me of those who watch out for their immigrant neighbor. He reminds me of those who protected their neighbors from the Gestapo. Dr. King said, if I help my neighbor, the question I ask is, what will happen to me? But the question we should be asking is, if I don't help my neighbor, what will happen to him? We've been given an invitation to give. We've been given an invitation to be educated. Uh, most Sundays, we've been given an education to serve. And, uh, you know, we've made a commitment as a church not to start anything that's already being done better than we already do. That's why we have decided to commit, with, commit with, uh, to partner organizations who can help us navigate, knowing how to live in this world with these kinds of things. And there are three specific organizations that we've decided to partner with. 
and I know it's the end of the giving season, and we are a tithing church, which means that I'm supposed to encourage you to tithe to your local place of worship and to give your first 10% of what God has helped you to earn to the local church. So feel free to give to the church. This might make our treasure nervous. But there are other uh, partnering organizations that I would encourage you to give to. The Sparrow Project leads the way in helping us care for our neighbors who are refugees. I invite you at the end of the giving season to give to the Sparrow Project. Holly and I have decided to give above our tithes to this church to our giving to the Sparrow Project. And we want to learn more. There's education about how we deal with and serve and minister to and educate ourselves uh, in light of our neighbors who are refugees. I also encourage you to give to the city rescue mission. It's our nearest neighbor. It's just down the street. They are the ones who help this city with homelessness. And God and his son Jesus was homeless. I invite you to get involved there. And finally, I invite you to get involved in the Palomar justice system. It's a way by which you can be Joseph. This is is an organization that we partner with who help people uh, who are victims of domestic violence who are fearful for their lives. These people at the Palomar Justice System, or Justice Center are right-to-life people. You helped not that long ago with gifts for the people who work for Palomar, but there are many, many, many other ways that you can serve the people whose lives in our city here are on the line. And that's the way in which you immerse yourself into the greater biblical story. Well, I think perhaps the model of selflessness that we see in Jesus came through this man whose name was Joseph. And that's why we get invited to his table. He demonstrates the selfishness of the one who modeled it before him while he was so young. And it is a story that we get to live into. So I want to remind you, as I invite you to this table on the last night of the decade, on the last Sunday of the decade, That on the night before Jesus was betrayed by those he came to save, at dinner he took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it. And he said, this is my body which is broken for you and whenever you eat it I want you to remember me. And then in the same way after supper he held up the cup and he said, this cup represents the new covenant that comes in my blood and whenever you drink this I want you to do so in affectionate remembrance of me. The cross looms large over the entire life and story of Jesus. But the cross is the sign that God has broken into our world and taken upon himself our plight. And it is at his table where we remember this. Friends, this is an open table. It's a place where you can trust God. And by coming to this table, we open ourselves up to the trust and the saving work that comes to us By God in Christ. This is not a Nazarene table. It is Jesus' table. And all who are open to the work of God in Christ are welcome to this table. We want no barriers. So everyone who wants to participate can. So our bread is gluten-free. Our wine is non-alcoholic. But I invite you to come down our aisle with your hands cupped. Ready to receive that which is good and that which comes from God. You hear me say it every week. We do not take communion here. There is nothing we have done to earn it. It is a free gift. So when you come down to the aisle and approach one of these servers, listen to what they have to say. Then dip the bread into the cup and eat it and be grateful. For any reason you can't come to our table, Paul would love to come and serve you. Raise your hand and he'll bring the elements to you. My friends, 
people of grace who need grace and who can give grace. You are welcome to this table whenever you are ready.